Today on The Grave Talks, Paradigm Shifts, a conversation with Andrea Perrin. You know her story from the books House of Darkness, House of Light, and portions of the movie The Conjuring. Andrea Perrin has lived a life unlike most others. Today we catch up with her to discuss what it is like revisiting the infamous house with her family after being away for so many years, the feelings and emotions that overtook her, and the dark feelings that overtook some of her sisters. We also dive into a conversation about how the global pandemic has affected our spiritual world and the massive paradigm shifts that we're currently going through, how it may turn out, and what may be able to lead us to a connective idea of one. All of that and more today on The Grave Talks. Welcome back. Um, It's been a while, um, but I'm so happy that you're here uh, on the program again. Lots has, I think, happened, transpired, occurred uh, in in your world, uh, in the world of of the story, uh, you know, of of the, the what everyone knows as the conjuring house, uh, you know, since I think the last time uh, you've been on. So there's a lot of things that we can kind of dive into. Uh, I, I think one of the, the questions that I want to just begin with is it's been um, in in the media, in the press uh, quite a bit since uh, there's been new owners of the house. It's been opened up for investigations, things of that nature. And I want to get into that. I want to get into what it was like going back there with your family. But let's start there. Let's start there with when the house was uh, was purchased and then really started to be looked at as paranormal tourism, if you will, uh, where people can go in and investigate. What were your initial thoughts on on that uh, that transpiring? Well, I didn't know um, precisely what the new owner's intentions were mm-hmm. uh, with the house. Um, it needed, it had suffered some neglect. It needed some attention, uh, which they gave it. Uh, it still needs more work. You know, I mean, that house was completed as it stands now in 1736. Yeah. So, you know, time, especially in New England, time takes its toll. <laughs> sure. Um, so they're working on it. In fact, I was just talking with them this morning about that. Um, but um, it's it's really, Tony, it's a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. Um, it's wonderful for me to be able to go back to the house. Sure. Uh, whenever I want to feel welcome there, to feel uh, as though it is honored that in some way it is still my house too, even though I don't own it. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, the new owners, uh, Corey and Jen Heinzen, um, have indeed opened it for uh, numerous investigations, probably well over a thousand people have gone through the house since they purchased it. Uh, It'll be two years, I believe it'll be two years in June. So next month. Um, I'm not sure that uh, all of them had the right and proper intention, even though uh, everybody is forewarned about, you know, how to treat it respectfully, no provoking, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But once a group is in there and they're doing an overnight investigation, you know, the owners aren't there. They're not watching every word they say, every step they take. And so you run the risk 
of some people being arrogant and um, not as respectful as they should be of a place that I consider sacred space. Sure. Uh, and so, uh, you know, if they're not being monitored, then that is an inherent risk. Uh, however, I, I do think that most people that have gone into the house have treated it with reverence and understand now much more about the energy in that place and how it really is what I've always described it as a portal cleverly disguised as a farmhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really is, um, you know, if I owned it, I, I don't think that, I mean, I would have people come over and see it and share the experience. Uh, I don't think that I would run it as a business Mm-hmm. Um, because it's so personal to me. Sure. Uh, but I don't own it. It's their house and they can do with it as they please. Mm-hmm. And the truth of the matter is that every time another group goes in there and collects more and more evidence, it's that compilation, you know, that overall body of evidence that's being compiled that. Um, serves to vindicate and validate our story, even though I don't feel that our story requires either of uh, those aspects that stands alone. But um, it really is amazing when people call me after they've been there, um, you know, people that I know in the field and say, oh, my God, I have waited all these years to step into your childhood home and I will never ever be the same. And this happened and that happened Mm -hmm. and the other thing happened. And I'm like, see, I told you, Yeah, I told you it's, it's an amazing, amazing place. So I think that in terms of the curiosity factor, the, the fascination about it, um, it serves a purpose. I just, I hope, that everyone treats it the way it deserves to be treated. I guess that's just um, my personal opinion about that. Um, I have seen groups go in. um, You know, there's been some filming that's been done there. um, And, you know, I'm not calling anybody out in the field specifically, Mm -hmm. but there have been shows that have been made there where uh, there were cringeworthy moments yeah. Um, that I had, I known that was coming, um, would not have been involved mm-hmm. with that particular project. And yet there have been other projects that I've been involved with there, uh, where it was treated with the utmost respect. Um, and that includes Amy Bruni and Adam Barry and Chip Coffee mm-hmm. with Kindred Spirits. Sure. Um, you know, we had a remarkable shoot there with them. Um, and um, I, I did another one actually last year on March 11th of 2020. Mm-hmm. My father and I were up there um, uh, shooting a documentary. And when we got back to our hotel rooms, turned on the TV and found out that it was the day that the World Health Organization declared a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. And that was literally the last time I've been to the farm and the last time I've been on a plane. Sure. Uh, we, you know, we left uh, Providence the next morning 
And the flight, when I did my check-in the night before, the flight was listed as full, every seat taken, mm-hmm. 189 seats on the jet. And when we boarded, we walked through security within five minutes. And the uh, TF Green Airport in Providence was like a ghost town. Uh, no pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> um, there were 24 of us on the flight and a flight crew of six, and they said, sit wherever you want. Nobody else is getting on this plane. Everybody else canceled their flight. Um, And that was kind of the beginning of the end. Within the next two to three weeks, uh, every event that I was scheduled for for the year, every shoot that I was scheduled for, Mm -hmm. uh, every lecture, every single thing that I was scheduled for in 2020, which was... Hands down, no competition, my busiest year. Sure. Um, My whole entire calendar was just month after month after month covered with X's. Yeah. Because everything got canceled, as it should have been. Sure. You know, that's one thing I have to say about the paranormal community, and I'm sure that you would agree with me. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't take chances with people's lives. So that you can all get together and play paranormal and have (laughs) your supernatural shenanigans. Exactly. You know, I mean, you just don't. And so all of the promoters, everybody just said, nope, no can do. We'll reschedule, hopefully, for the following year. Mm-hmm. And um, next weekend, I'm going on my first event since uh, the pandemic. And I'm all vaxxed up and ready to go to Gettysburg for Phenomenology with Dana Wingard and her crew. Um, so uh, I'm looking forward to getting back into the swing of things and seeing my paranormal people and uh because there's no one quite like our group of others <laughs> you know we're sure. like all light and love and weirdness and witchcraft and you know yep. just uh it's really an amazing group of people and i'm so looking forward to seeing them because i've been uh basically sequestered at home sure. for more than a year it is and, weird. Uh, it is weird feeling going out and doing things again. And I, I, I'm enjoying it, but I'm still it's it's kind of like there's some I think it's PTSD is really what I think a lot of us are dealing with. Like, I feel weird not yeah. wearing a mask at the garden center or, you know, yeah. or wherever I'm going. I but, know it is. It's strange. You know, and I I mean, really, for all intents and purposes, other than an occasional occasional trip to the grocery store where I was double masked all the time for everything or, a, you know, a, a trip to the uh, the pet food store that I frequent for my little peanut butter cup, uh, my princess puppy. Um, you know, I haven't really gone anywhere or done anything. I did spend a couple of months uh, over the holidays up in Georgia with my mother and my sisters, mm-hmm. uh, and that was absolutely delightful. But I came back Uh, in February, and I have been here in Florida ever since with my dad. Um, And um, in a few weeks, I'm heading out to L.A. uh, to make some serious metaphysical mischief out (laughs) um, in La La Land with some of my friends out there and and do some filming and have some production meetings. And another thing um, shifted for me during this paradigm shift of an experience that we've all been through a shared experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is that what I wanted to do with my story originally, I finally got my way. 
And what I wanted to do was take my trilogy of books, House of Darkness, House of Light, and transpose them into a series Mm -hmm. rather than feature films. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, the entire feature film industry fell flat on its face Mm -hmm. uh, during this pandemic. Nobody could really film anything, couldn't even get insurance to film anything. Um, So there were uh, a few things that were already in the can that have come out to keep us entertained over this last year plus. But uh, for the most part, nobody in the industry has been working. Um, And so I took that time to work with my dear friend and professional screenwriter, Jeff Ward. And we took what we had as the original screenplay for what would have been one of three feature films to coincide with each one of my books about the true story Mm -hmm. uh, behind The Conjuring. And instead, we had the freedom to really flesh it out so that what we've done is we've created 30 screenplays um, for episodic television. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, And so I'm going out to um, to make my big pitch to uh, a company who everyone knows the name of, but I can't really talk about it yet. Sure. And um, I think that it's more suitable to um, to this kind of a format where you can have full character development, where nothing gets left on the cutting room floor, Mm -hmm. where every um, major incident gets, you know, fully covered. Um, And what is phenomenal and astounding about the story that never made it into The Conjuring. The Conjuring was literally conjured up in the minds of two screenwriters who cherry picked from the uh, case files of Lorraine Warren and in consultation with me added a few elements of quote unquote truth Mm -hmm. into the, the film. But um, it didn't even scratch the surface. And what Jeff and I have created bears absolutely no resemblance to The Conjuring. So the thing that's exciting to me about it is that it will, in a different format, be the first time that the quote unquote same story Mm -hmm. is being told by juxtaposed perspectives. Those who investigated the house and those who lived in the house for 10 years. And I find that all very exciting and I'm really thrilled to not too thrilled to get on a plane and sit there for, you know, six hours. But um, other than that, it's it's a grueling trip. I know, you know, Tony, it's a grueling trip out to California, but uh, uh, it'll be worth it. I'm going to be out there for five or six days. And while I'm out there on top of everything else that I'm doing in production meetings and meeting with my attorney and blah, 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 and yada, yada. Um, I'm also uh, shooting a whole new series that, again, I can't tell you anything about yet, but I do promise to come back on your show <laughs> when I can talk about it. Um, and it has to do much more with extraterrestrials. That'll be interesting. Um, I'm not just the ghost lady. You know, yeah. I've, I've got a profound connection with our galactic family. And I have since I was a child. Sure. And my last book is all about that. Mm-hmm. So, um it's uh, it's time to move forward. I'm as I told one of my producers recently, let's go. Let's go. I'm getting too old to put my future off anymore. I'm all vaxxed up. Let's go. Sure. 
and and that's good. That's good for you. I'm I'm excited about all these things that you have going on uh, in your life and in the future. I want to um, take a step back here to some of the things we were talking about, and and I'm interested to hear uh, the difference in in feelings of of yourself from when you last uh, set foot in the house as when you were younger, when when you when you moved out, uh, and what you were your opinion or your feelings of the house were when you left. Versus then what it was like coming back all those years later for the first time. Well, you know, that's a, um, a very erudite question. Um, and it's a little complicated. I imagine. Because <laughs> um, when we left the house in June of 1980, <clears throat> to say that my heart was broken was the understatement of the new forthcoming millennium. Mm -hmm. Um, I was absolutely devastated that my parents sold the house while I was in my senior year of college out in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. Um, I was really angry when I got the phone call from both of them Mm -hmm. that the house had actually been sold when I didn't even know that they had put it on the market. Mm -hmm. Well, they had put it on the market and it had been languishing there for six months at a very fair price, very fair. Mm -hmm. And nobody even called. And it was my mother telling my father that no matter what, she was leaving the farm because she didn't think that she would survive another winter there Mm -hmm. um, for a variety of reasons, you know, not just the harsh elements, but because of the activity in the house had taken such a toll on her. And so he went to the abutting landowners and made a really sweet deal for them. And then they told me, and my attitude about that was, excuse me, I thought our family was a democracy, not a dictatorship, you know, and and why did this happen without any consultation, uh, you know, from me, without anybody even asking my opinion about this. Mm -hmm. And I was hysterical. I was crying uncontrollably. I was sitting in my dorm room. um, And, you know, I had uh, finals starting the next day. Uh, I was absolutely devastated. And it took my mother, I mean, my father, I mean, talk about inconsolable grief. You would have thought someone very close to me had died. Mm-hmm. Um, and my father couldn't even talk to me. I mean, because I just, I couldn't breathe. I mean, I was hyperventilating. I was so upset. And he said, I'm just going to put your mother on the phone. And she's the one that said to me that um, she, she wouldn't have made it another year, that it would have claimed her. And that sobered me up. And I realized that it was a done deal. It was over. The farm was lost and that it was time to recalibrate and move on with life. And so she said they had found a beautiful uh, new house on a a gorgeous piece of property down in Georgia. And she wanted me to come and we would start a new life. And and uh, Nancy, my sister, Nancy, refused to go. She went to the new owners and she was their babysitter for their, they had two little kids. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, I know you want to, um, to do work on the house. I'll stay on indefinitely as the caretaker if you want, because they had no intention of moving into the farm. They were just going to restore it to its original colonial uh, splendor. 
uh, take the front porch off and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, which were additions that had been put on over the years mm-hmm. uh, before we even got there. And so they agreed to that. That was a great deal for them. Nancy could live there for free and, and they knew that the house was protected. So uh, our family never lived under the same roof again when we left. Uh, all of us went to Georgia except for Nancy. Mm-hmm. And by the time Nancy uh, left Rhode Island and moved to Georgia. We had all moved on. Uh, I was living in Roswell, Georgia. My sister Christine had moved in with me. My sister Cindy had gotten married and moved out. Um, you know, there was uh, only my sister April was left at home with my parents. And so it was kind of a uh, <clears throat> heartbreaking fracturing of our family that took place. And then Over the years, about seven years later, I left Georgia and I moved back to Rhode Island because to say I was a misfit in Georgia and in complete culture shock, Mm -hmm. again, another understatement. Um, I just did not fit. There was there was I was so out of my element Uh, There, it was ridiculous. And um, so about seven years after I moved to Georgia in 1980, I moved back to Rhode Island in 1987. Um, And then Christine moved back. Mm -hmm. And so we spent decades going up and down the eastern seaboard, um, being drawn back. Uh, Cindy never went back. She stayed in Georgia. Um, Nancy did go back uh, and lived in Massachusetts for a couple of decades. Um, you know, it it was uh, it. We were always being drawn back, and I would go and drive by the farm and visit the you know visit the land with my eyes from the road for years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never approached uh, who were the homeowners at the time. There was a long period of time that it was vacant. Mm-hmm. Um, And then while I was uh, living in Rhode Island, um, I uh, ended up opening a restaurant. And one day, the former owner, not the current owners, but the former owner walked in and she recognized my business partner and uh, identified herself. And she said, oh, Gail, I just bought an original colonial home on Roundtop Road in Harrisville, and it's haunted. Well, I about dropped my teeth. Um, I went, I I was uh, working in the kitchen and I dropped what I was doing, handed everything I was doing over to one of my employees and said, you take it from here. I have to go talk to this woman. Mm -hmm. And I think that was in like 1987 or 88. Um, And we became friendly and I once again had access to the farm Mm -hmm. and I didn't make a pest of myself, but at least a couple of times a year I would go visit Mm -hmm. and go walk the land and go down to the river and just, you know, feel the place, just feel the place because honest to God, Tony, you know, I've lived in a lot of places. I've lived in a lot of different homes. I've lived in different States. Uh, And that is the only place on planet Earth that has any sense of permanence for me. It is the only place that has ever felt like home to me, ever. Mm -hmm. And so it was wonderful to be able to go back and uh, 
just revisit it. Just you know, not even necessarily to revisit uh, my childhood there because it really wasn't about that. I was always in the present and yet always had that same sense of timelessness when being present in the house. Um, and of course, I had a very close, um, some would call bizarre uh, kinship with the spirits. And so it was my opportunity to kind of check in on them. Um, and I didn't really ever put it that way to anybody because, you know, still even during those years, I hadn't really shared my emotions about the place with anybody mm-hmm. um, or the sense of loss and grief that I'd had. But it was, it was, uh, I, I had a certain sense of simpaticos, uh, uh, a revisiting and a reconnection with uh, something that was so profoundly important to me. And everything was fine between us. And then I started writing the books in 07. And I knew this woman for 28 years um, and went back, you know, really at my leisure whenever I wanted. I lived in Harmony, Rhode Island. I didn't live that far. I lived one town south of Burrowville, mm-hmm. um, uh, just south of the village of Chapache. So uh, I had a very nice little cottage on Waterman Lake. And uh, I had a great life. I worked at Harmony Hill School. I was a member of the theater company of Rhode Island. So I was up in Harrisville all the time doing shows at the local theater, which I had kind of grown up in anyway. So I I was able to reestablish that sense of belonging, that sense of home um, in a way without even being at the farm. Just the you might understand this, just a certain knowing that it was a few miles up the road, mm-hmm. you know, that I was that close to it that I was back in my in what I always perceived to be my real true hometown mm-hmm. even though I had lived in Connecticut as a child um till the age of 6 and then Cumberland Rhode Island until I was 12 before we actually moved to the farm and again that brings me full circle back to the farm the farm the farm mm-hmm. and so Um, I started writing the books in August of 07. It was only supposed to be one book. It turned into three. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I left Rhode Island and went back to Georgia in March of 08. I published the first of the three books in um, March of 2011. Mm -hmm. And then the second one in 2013 and the third in 2014. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the second book, the third book came out after the film had been released. Um, but then the trilogy was done and everything was fine with, uh, she who will not be named, um, until the movie came out. Mm -hmm. And then apparently she forgot that I had, made a couple of videos with her discussing the forthcoming film, discussing the fact that she is the one that put me in touch with the executive producer of the film. Um, uh, And she went on national television and she said, uh, everyone go away, no ghosts here. The parent family made it all up. And that was the end of that friendship. (laughs) Um, I'm a big girl and I can take care of myself, but when you call my mother, a liar mm-hmm. on network television than them's fighting words. And it was war. Yeah. Um, and I, um, 
was uh, angry in the extreme because the fact of the matter and the truth of the matter is that for years and years, she was inviting one paranormal investigative team after another, after another into that farmhouse. Mm -hmm. And you don't do that unless there's something to investigate. Mm -hmm. You don't call taps and ghost hunters. Uh, and for anybody that needs a refresher course and how that went, um, let me recommend season two, episode seven of um, of their series, which focused the second half of which focused on the farmhouse. I didn't even know anything about it until I went into work the next day after that episode had aired. And somebody at work said to me, I think your old house was on TV last night. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, I mean, she never said anything to me about that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there were a lot of people that came and went. And I just I just don't think that you invite paranormal investigative teams into a house where you think there is absolutely no activity. Um, she called me and started threatening me to take down the interviews that I had done with her that I had on my YouTube channel. Mm hmm. Um, meanwhile, she had, you know, gotten in cahoots with a scurvy little guy who was making some off the wall videos of her ranting and raving and carrying on um, about uh, how we made it all up. And, you know, she thought, it, you know, that's OK for her to put up on YouTube. But I had to take all of my stuff down, which I refused to do. Needless to say, it did not go well. Mm -hmm. Um and I was so relieved. I mean, I was shut out of that house from the time that the movie uh, premiered till um, till the new owners bought it. Mm -hmm. And so I went for about six years where I had absolutely no access to the one place that's, you know, kind of my happy place. Uh, I never had a, um, a conscious um, uh, difficult encounter with any of the spirits, uh, any fear that I felt in that house, I felt on behalf of other family members that were enduring things that I was not. Um, something bad did happen to me in the house, but I was not awake when it happened. My sister Cindy saw, saw it. Mm -hmm. And when it saw her seeing it, instead of coming after me, it went after her and dragged her halfway down the bedroom stairs from my room um, on her stomach backwards. Uh, so, yeah, there were some really bizarre things that happened and there were dangerous things that happened. There was something absolutely malignant in the house. But for the most part, the spirits in the house were either benign or benevolent. Um, and I had a kind of a familial relationship with some of them as we all did you know it took years and years for us to realize that you know most of them just wanted to be acknowledged and you know for us to communicate with them to let them know that we knew that they were there to be respectful to to uh acknowledge that it was their house first and that for all intents and purposes we were the intruders mm -hmm. um there was you know i mean that's one of the reasons why I wanted to tell my story, my family's collective memoir as a series so that yeah. we could get really into the minutia of the psychological 
changes that occurred within each one of us, how each one of us dealt with the experience of living in that house and living timelessly for a decade. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, uh, and so I'm really, uh, you know, of course, nobody welcomes a global pandemic, but it did, it did give me time to, um, to nest, to settle in place and to really think about what I wanted the future to look like and how I wanted this story told. And so in that respect, it has served me well. When you came back to the house after those six years where you didn't have access to it, did it still have the same feeling and draw that it had to you in the past? Did anything changed in that? Oh, that no, time period? it, it no. was all, it's always the same yeah. for me, always. And yet when we all went back a couple of years ago to shoot Kindred Spirits with mm-hmm. Amy and Adam and Chip, yeah. um, Cindy had a terrible experience in that house that night and swears to God she will never step foot back on that property again for the rest of her life. And I believe her. I mean, it was awful what she went through in the house that night. Christine walked in and she said, this house feels cold and dead to me. I don't have a sense of anything being here. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Cindy is, you know, going through hell and you can see it. If you watch the episode, you can see what Cindy is going through in the house. And you can see that Nancy is, you know, picking up on it as well and trying to comfort her and to support her and be there for her. But I'll tell you what, Tony, when we left that house, Uh, That night after we did that shoot with them Mm -hmm. and went back to the hotel room, Cindy fell into a coma. I mean, she just went to her room and fell flat out. And we left early the next morning. It was a quick up and uh, up and back. And she and Christine, of course, flew back to Atlanta. And Nancy and dad and I flew back to Orlando. And that afternoon, I get a text in my phone. And when she got home, she's like, I am so sick. I am so tired and I was changing into my pajamas at two o'clock in the afternoon and her husband noticed that there was a bruise the size of a softball on the back of her leg and she felt like she had been kidney punched. Mm -hmm. Um, She said they were calling to me. They were calling to me. They wanted me to go into the cellar. They wanted me to go into what used to be mom and dad's old room. And now it's a library. They wanted me to go. And you can see during the episode, there's a few moments where the camera actually catches Cindy and she's got her eyes closed and she's like shaking her head and her, her lips are moving and she's saying, no, no. Well, she didn't do as she was told and she paid the price for it. And it took her a couple of weeks to recover from that trip. Um, Nancy was very emotionally adversely affected. Christine, nothing, absolutely nothing. Um, and my dad and I were just, you know, happy to be there and uh, thrilled to be able to tell elements of our story. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing that I'm sad about in terms of that episode of Kindred Spirits is that we filmed with them for five hours and um, there were some real treasures that hit the the editing floor, mm-hmm. uh, as in my opinion. But, you know, yeah. I wasn't in charge of the production. I didn't make those calls. Sure. And neither did Amy or Adam or Chip. You know, that was the travel channel. That yeah. was their production team that decided what to keep and what to throw away. Yeah. And um, I consider it uh, a lost opportunity. Yeah. Um, 
not in terms of, you know, having more airtime. It's not anything like that. It's just that some of what we shared um, was lost yeah. and um, not even used in the episode. And I, you know, I'm, I'm sad about that. Um, but, you know, I've since had an opportunity to film other things there and things that uh, hit the cutting room floor uh, with that production team have since made it to air in other uh, in other uh, projects. So uh, at least there's some validation there. Why do you think it is that that you have this, you know, like this positive, warm, fuzzy feeling about the house, for lack of a better term, and others in your family, your sisters, uh, you know, some are just nil and a very neutral and others. It's it's you know, it's very negative. Is it something where the pieces of the house, the the entities that live there kind of pick and choose who they're going to be around and, and present different experiences to each one of you? Um, I don't know. I wish that I could answer that. Yeah. If I could answer that, that would make me a bona fide expert in the paranormal, <laughs> but yeah. there is no such thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, if our family doesn't know, then no one does. I'm, sure. For having been steeped in that environment for a decade, uh, and we still can't answer those questions. But I do um, have a tendency to speculate about that. Um, and I know you know the books very well, and mm -hmm. I know that you've done your homework, and you and I have been friends for quite a while, mm -hmm. and so you're probably going to know how I'm going to answer this before I actually <laughs> answer it for your listeners. But um, <clears throat> the day that we moved out of that house, I told my mother about something that had happened there uh, and seeing a spirit uh, in the house when I was 17 years old that was the... Um, uh, mirror image reflection of me as an old woman. And I told my mother, everybody saw the apparition, but she was facing me as I was standing on the hearthstone. I had just come home from college to celebrate my 18th birthday, which almost always falls on the Columbus Day weekend holiday. So, you know, I whined and complained. I'd only been out at college for six weeks. I was miserable. All I wanted to do was come home. Yeah. I missed my family. I missed my farm. I missed my spirits. I missed life at the farm desperately and thought, oh, I've made a terrible mistake, you know, going out to this fabulous college, one of the top 10 women's colleges in the country, mm -hmm. practically on full scholarship. And, um, and yet I just couldn't wait to get back to Harrisville. And I was standing on the hearthstone and uh, the whole right side of my body went cold as ice, like a slab of ice. And my father and my the rest of my family were sitting in the dining room. Uh, and there's quite a large opening between the parlor and the dining room. And I was standing very close to the fire and I couldn't get warm. I even remember what I was wearing. I had a pair of uh, brown corduroys on thick corduroy and I remember thinking I'm standing too close to the fire I mean it, you know I could literally have melted those pants onto the back of my legs or you know spontaneously combusted mm -hmm. I was standing that close to the fire to try to get warm I was absolutely frigid and and I had in a six-week period of time forgotten my ability to be able to distinguish be between natural cold and supernatural cold but what i was actually feeling was supernatural cold and my father dropped his fork and it hit the china plate 
And I looked up and he was staring at me, but he was actually staring to my right. And he saw her first. And then all the heads at the table turned and he said, someone's come to welcome you home. And I turned my head because that's like the only part of my body that I could move. (laughs) And I looked at her and she smiled at me and it was me from a different century. Yeah. And I never told anybody in my family about that because it was complicated and convoluted enough. Sure. I didn't, you know, I, I had to process what I saw myself before I could even share it. And it was the day that we moved out and we were already on the road. We had already left and everybody was kind of all cried out and we left Nancy standing on the front porch and, And, you know, our family had just been torn apart. Cindy had already left and gone down to Georgia with the horses and a family friend to get the house, the new house open and settled and ready to receive us and um, and get the horses out to pasture. Mm -hmm. And so she'd already been gone for a week or 10 days when I got back from my college graduation. And then we were there for about two weeks packing up what? she hadn't taken in the first truckload with the horses. And so um, we were leaving, we were driving down Round Top Road for the last time. And I told my mother what I had seen four years earlier on that hearthstone. And she said, Annie, I always knew we bought that house for you. It's okay. I don't know. I can't explain it. But I had a sense of family living there with them. Mm -hmm. And I love them. Even the cranky ones. (laughs) I love them. I appreciate that they chose my family to show themselves to. And I don't know if it's because we brought so much energy, you know, five little girls that were, you know, a little on the tomboyish side. We just had, you know, a lot of exuberant energy as children. I was 12, you know, uh, Nancy was 10, Christine was nine, Cindy was eight, April was five Mm -hmm. when we moved into the farmhouse. And it seemed to activate it. It was almost like they drew from our energy and made their presence known in a variety of ways. And, and, you know, there were some terrible things that happened in that house to my mother, to um, not to, well, yeah, Nancy, Nancy, Christine and Cindy, but Cindy of the sisters, Cindy more than anyone Mm -hmm. um, had some uh, really close encounters there that were life altering that have, have left her for lack of a better word, scarred. And uh, and I don't blame her for saying that she will never go back to the farmhouse. And my mother, the day we moved out, said, I will never come back here again. And that was in June of 1980. And, you know, it's May of 2021. And she has never, ever stepped foot back on that property. Sure. That wraps up part one of our conversation with Andrea Perrin, one of my favorite guests on the program. Do not miss part two. 
You can get it when you're a Gravekeeper. Sign up, patreon.com slash thegravetalks. We'll talk more to Andrea about what it was like revisiting the Conjuring house with her family, what happened to her sister when they returned to the house, and what emotionally happened to Andrea and the differences. Why is it that Andrea seems to have positive feelings about the house while other family members don't? How does Andrea think the global pandemic has affected the world of spirits and the supernatural? What's Andrea's take on the mass number of UFOs that people see around the world currently? And what memory did an encounter with the supernatural bring back to Andrea's mind late one night, outside, under the stars? You don't want to miss it. To hear it, become a Gravekeeper. That's a supporter of our program. Go to patreon.com slash thegravetalks to hear part two of our very intriguing and brand new conversation with Andrea Perrin. Patreon.com slash thegravetalks. You'll get access to part two of this interview, as well as all of our interviews in their entirety. Hundreds of them for you to binge away on right now, all commercial free. Patreon.com slash The Grave Talks. Until next time for The Grave Talks, I'm Tony Bruschi. Thanks for listening. <laughs>